Well, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I am in West London, in Sussex Gardens, in a cafe, the name of which I don't know. Well, maybe it'll come to us later, but we're very glad to be here. And I'm with my old friend Marwan Kredi. Marwan, how are you? I'm good, Toby. Thank you. It's great Thank to you. be with you. And you've just arrived with the family from Philadelphia, here in London, so this is probably not the ideal time for you to be recording a conversation, but your game. Or the best time, maybe. Or all the best time, right. So tell, tell us what you've been up to, what you're working on these days. I know you've fairly recently come back from Beirut. Uh, you were Edward Said visiting professor at uh, American University of Beirut. Uh, and now you're back at the University of Pennsylvania. But what have you been up to? What's interesting um, these days? One of one of one of the best things about um, you know displacing yourself to to another place is you you reshuffle your priorities of what you think is interesting and, and, and what is not. So I went to Beirut with the with the notion that I would finish. Uh, um, book on music video and the book we were working with yeah. together um, and I ended up being completely um, um, sucked into the graffiti scene in, in, uh, in Beirut and this was a very new thing to me because it's been 15 years maybe that I'm, I write about the Arab world from the United States and um, as much as you visit and you go very frequently for periods up to several months there's nothing like living having to deal with the daily life, learning how to be alive yeah. in, a, in a city. And that's something that graffiti does to you because it's 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 a very um, immersive, very affective type of, of, of reaction yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, to it. Um, whether it's the smell of paint, whether it's the chance encounter with um, um, a tagger at three in the morning while you're coming back from a party or um, um, looking at how... Um, Debates go on on walls with people subverting and erasing and repainting and, and yeah, things that start yeah. looking at class divisions, uh, sectarian divisions, refracting graffiti. So that's one thing that that um, I basically became a vi- an avid graffiti hunter. And rather like a tornado chaser, I mean, I yes. say storm chaser. Is there stuff going up? Uh, would you say nowadays about? Should we save a Syrian question in terms of the number yes. of refugees in Lebanon? Is that one of the topics? Absolutely, it's 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 a it's a it's a very big topic. Uh, official estimates say there there's a million um, Syrian refugee in Lebanon. Um, those are in addition to several hundred thousand workers who, who were in Lebanon before the Syrian crisis. And actually, one of the things that I I, um, um, I spoke about uh, an hour ago. We're at the International Communication Association yes. convention. What's our alibi for being yes. together? Was, was, was to look at how Beirut basically became a, uh, an alternative scene for Syrian revolutionary graffiti. Because if you're, if you're in Damascus and you're caught spraying graffiti, it's, it's a death sentence from any of the two or three or four or five or six sides. Uh, if, you, if you run into the wrong people at the wrong time, spraying the wrong message on a wall. Yeah. And so a lot of them ended up in Lebanon. Now, one of the very interesting things about them is that um, the absolute majority is in Arabic, um, which differs from some of the other graffiti that you see in, in the Arab world. In Beirut, there's a lot of English language graffiti, some French. Um, but also what's so interesting is that some of these... Um, stencil is the king. Uh, the stencil format is... Um, um, is really the most um, um, visible. It proliferates because, as I found out when I interviewed some of uh, uh, people, um, you need less than a minute. If you have a stencil ready, sure. um, you carry it in a backpack, you're on foot, you can do it, you can do many. And, and, um, Thank you very much. And run away uh, very easily. And so um, the other thing that's very interesting is that some of the... Thank you. Some of the stencils are actually designed by Egyptian artists. And so there is this, this thing going on where uh, there's one famous one called Be With the Revolution that was actually designed um, um, a couple of years ago by an Egyptian um, artist. Um, uploaded it on Facebook where there are several repositories. It was reprinted. The stencil was reconstructed by some Syrian activists. And now it's associated with the Syrian revolution. So there's this very interesting sense of 
this translocalism of graffiti that's moving from city to city. Um, and the fact that um, the things are palimpsests, in fact. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's so, so, so one of the things I'm, I'm looking at is uh, this whole notion of Beirut being this heterotopia now yeah. for these other cities where it's, it's, you literally run the risk of death if you spray graffiti. Uh, Beirut and Damascus are very close. We're talking uh, 65, 70 kilometers. And so it's really, geography is visible in that, in that sense. But people are also talking about Lebanon as potentially where a major war breaks out. Yes. The tension is so great. The pressures are so extraordinary. The, the pressures are, are extraordinary. There's no, uh, there's no state authority. Yeah. Uh, borders are not uh, completely porous. Um, there's, there are no facilities. Uh, there's, there's no money for refugees. Um, They're in the old Palestinian camps. Is that uh, right? some of them are the old Palestinian camps? Others yeah. are in schools. Um, uh, some are in, in football stadia, uh, convents, churches, mosques. Any any wow. public space that's available is is, is, is taken. And um, and there also, of course, you see the class. Class divisions in Syria are reproducing themselves in Lebanon. So the wealthy Syrians are coming. If they're Christians, they're buying luxury apartments in the Christian neighborhoods of Beirut. If not, and then the poor end up on the streets. So you see these. Yeah. So, for instance, another interesting problem: yeah. elite schools, elite private schools, don't have any any spaces for students because they're absorbing pupils from Syria who have the money to and who come with donations. So it's it's very interesting. It's it's yeah. people are experiencing the war. Uh, in Syria by proxy. Mm -hmm. By proxy. And in terms of the taggers that you, uh -huh. know, that you met, or the, ta or the languages they uh -huh. use, is there a social class or, or religious element that you can map onto the minorities writing in French or English as opposed to Arabic or, or drawing? In no, not really. Not really? No, no not, not really. And this is one thing because even, even the Lebanese graffiti scene tends to be dominated by folks who are, um, by definition, anti sectarian who see themselves as different and in fact one of the one of the things that they argue when you talk to them is because the walls are the last space left for you to be able to express yourself without the sectarian straitjackets that you're expected to, to perform through in public yeah. debate yeah and so this this makes them um, um, quite interesting and there's a lot of criticism the other very very interesting aspect about graffiti in the city is that this is where you find the most interesting criticism of other media whether it's Twitter, Facebook, television, newspapers, uh, it seems that a, a very large part of these graffiti is critical of other media. Now, Marwan, I don't want to deny you your food while it's still warm. You should definitely start on that. So I'm going to, but I'm going to keep asking you questions. Yes. I'll just try to make them slightly longer so you can Thank you. ruminate while biting, as it were. Um, now, I really like your notion of going to a place to do X, but finding that Y overtakes and overwhelms you. That's very much my experience of life, too. How does that gel with a lot of the norms of academia, which say, almost, you must know what you're going to do and what you're going to find out before you do any of it, as opposed to the, an old world, which says, I'm going to walk around and see what the rocks form like, and what happens the butterfly's wings have. There are, you know, I think, so for me personally, what happened was beyond, after, you know, I had a couple of weeks of confusion, uh, when I felt paralyzed, it was tremendously liberating to be able to just give yourself a way to just let go, and, and I, I developed this, almost a sense of smell for where these uh, uh, graffiti are, and, um, and of course I have the luxury to do this because uh, I've been doing this for a while, so I'm relatively um, um, established in, in my work. Um, so can I interrupt you? Could I ask you to shift over here? Yes. So I can turn the, com the computer away from where the noise is coming? Do you mind? Uh, I'll just take these because the whole of London is hard there. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, you should tell everybody you know, handbags and whatnot must be within touching distance in any yeah. coffee shop or bar anywhere in London. But anyway, sorry, yeah. so there was a sense so, of liberation. So there, was a, there was a tremendous sense of liberation and um, the notion that it would have been utterly stupid to come with a preconceived notion 
Yeah, a notion that was preconceived, yes, sure, out of many visits before, but was really conceived in my office in Philadelphia, <laughs> and imposed that um, notion on a, um, a physical space that I was experiencing firsthand. Uh, that 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 was very that would have been very stupid. And so, you know, the shift, as I said, was difficult at the beginning. Um, I think it's a problem with with um, academic norms and expectations. We're supposed to have, you know, your your study design and your structure and, and you know you do your literature review and all that. Um, I think that must be done sometimes, but letting yourself be guided by what you see, even if that means changing your opinions, changing your priorities is very helpful. Yeah. I guess one of the things I want to ask you is also about this question of being in Philadelphia. Uh, you're a native of Lebanon, you grew up there, you studied there, you have family there still. Um, what was it like to go back to a place that obviously you grew up with in the midst of civil war, or a child in, 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 civil, in civil war, that has been invaded uh, several times in recent past, recent history, that has had massive destabilization of government with undoubtedly intelligence slash espionage activities by the Syrians, the Americans, the French, you name it. Did it feel like a very different place from 20 years ago? It did feel, it did feel like a very different place 20 years ago. Um, when I left Lebanon, Beirut meant war. And I had never lived in Beirut before. I grew up in a small town on the coast, uh, uh, north of Beirut. So being able to experience the city um, without having a car, walking everywhere, was um, was very different. So the Lebanon I encountered in that sense was very different because it was the heart of Beirut, where um, very mixed socially, ideologically, ethnically, right. religiously. Right. Whereas you grew so up that's probably more Maronite? Yes. And uh, fairly peaceful during the Civil War? Uh, not, not too, no, not too peaceful, but okay. I never encountered street fighting, for example. Right. Rockets and bombs fell on the building where we lived, and, you know, friends died and all these things. So, so, so I did experience the war firsthand, but, but I never experienced it from the city, where uh, you mentioned palimpsests yeah. um, earlier. So one of the great things about walking around in Beirut is that you encounter buildings uh, that were built in the 40s and the 50s that were utterly destroyed during the war, that have um, trees now coming out of bathroom windows, trees with trunks that have, you know, that are 20 centimeters in diameter. And then you um, you move a branch up and you see a graffito that was that must have been sprayed there in 1976 or 78. You still see some of those whatever hasn't been gentrified. So you have these um, layers of, 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 uh, of signs and expressions of many people who have passed through that, that, that I didn't encounter before coming to the U.S. where I lived. Where I lived was relatively homogenous, um, relatively middle class, uh, relatively well-educated, as opposed to the complete mix street life. Uh, I had never seen homeless people in Lebanon the last year. I had not um, had to deal with many beggars in the last year. I had not had to deal with extremely polarized discussions where you knew that you were sitting in a room with every single faction in the country represented and you had to... So the rules, the norms of public debate... Just as well you work at the Annenberg School of Communication, that would have prepared you quite well for a number of those experiences. Uh, yes, for the, definitely for the for the debate part. And for, you well, know, stepping, over, stepping over the beggars in the streets of Philadelphia, you know, also. Uh, yes, although I have to say um, um, I was shocked by how many homeless there were in Beirut. Right. Um, it, it, I, I don't want to, I'm not yeah. sure that rivals Philadelphia, but yes. No, but it's, you know what I mean. It's, yes, just, it's interesting that, that the attempt to other places in the Arab world, by contrast with the United States, mm -hmm. becomes very interesting when you say to me, growing up in Lebanon, I was not used to the homeless and the intensely poor on a daily basis, whereas you do know that in Philadelphia. Absolutely. Yeah, that, I guess that's one of Absolutely. And that brings me on to another question I had. Uh, there you are at the Lebanese American University, a distinguished one, probably been going for over a hundred years, I think. Yes, uh, I was at the American University of Beirut. Oh, sorry, it's, it's, yeah. Beirut, which is 1880s. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I'm sorry, there are these two American universities uh, yes. in Beirut that are long-standing, 19th century, like American University in Paris. And you're in this Edward Said named chair. Oh. How does Said circulate as a sign uh, nowadays there, would you uh, say? I was, it was actually um, stunning for me what just having that name attached to your name does to you and opens uh -huh. the kinds of doors that there were people who did not need to take me seriously, who didn't know who I was, who, you know, some towering Arab intellectuals who've been writing in Arabic for years. And just having that name um, was immediate, gave me a, a kind of access, the immediate access. That's, that's, that was actually quite an experience. Um, after um, presenting the, uh, the Edward Said lecture in February, for instance, uh, Edward's sister came to talk to me about things and about what I had said. And, and so there was, there was a sense of having that name attached to you gives you access to a community, to a group of people, to several groups of people who would otherwise not take you seriously. So that, 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 that was amazing. Um, Edward Said in, in, in Beirut is seen as, um, I don't know what the word would be to describe, um, kind of a towering, still very much present um, intellectual influence. He was the, um, the voice behind urging uh, the university to create uh, a Center for American Studies. Because he said, look how many Center for Middle Eastern Studies exist in the U.S. Why? No Arab university has Center for American So he was truly a humanist in, in the best sense of the word. And that legacy survives, uh, circulates at many different levels. Uh, journalists know his work very well. Journalists who would not read post-colonial theory or, or academic prose. Well, he also wrote journalism, which was, yes. of course, hidden from us in the United States, uh, yes. but was published everywhere else in the yes. world on a routine exactly. basis, in, including in Rupert Murdoch's newspapers in English, but outside yep. the U.S. You could read Edward Said all over the world, except yep. for one country. Uh, you could read him here as a music critic, yep. more than anything else, and, and a few book reviews about tennis. And, uh, well, it, he was the music critic, that's the music critic of the nation. Of the nation. So yes. In the yeah. United States, that was his way in, but that's not the same as being no. a byline columnist in a paper. No, it's not. Yeah. It's yeah. not. And, and, and so, so the, the level of seriousness with which his thought and his writings are taken yeah. in the region are yeah. stratospheric. So, Let's bring that onto a related topic, if, if I could, uh, one that you and I have discussed briefly in the past. You talked about the difficulty of feeling you can competently research and speak about slash for the Arab world because of what distance from it. Almost everybody I ever hear in the United States speaking about and for the Arab world can't speak or write Arabic. Uh -huh. How does this happen? What is What are the channels that animate the discussions we have at a foreign policy level, but also this the mythic sort of cultural understanding of the Arab street or the Arab spring uh -huh. that permit these self-appointed experts who are expert in nothing. Well, well, so, 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 so the, I mean, so one, of, I think one of the one of the um, one of the unfortunate things about uh, um, to make a connection with Said again, yeah. his um, um, critique of, of Orientalism is that Orientalists did one thing very well, which is they really learned the languages of the cultures they were studying. <laughs> and so one of the most learned accounts of, of, of different periods of, of Middle Eastern history um, are written by French and German. Um, by many Orientalists. By many accounts, you know, the best biography of the Prophet Muhammad is written by Maxime Rodinson, the, 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 Rodinson, the famous French Orientalist. So there is that. I think in the United States there's a lot of a lot of so-called expertise about the Arab world originates in think tanks that are ideologically driven. And I think that uh, in many ways, in many circles in the United States, these debates are not animated by a desire to actually understand what's going on in the Arab world, but they're animated by, I would say, three main issues, uh, which is oil and energy, um, Israel, and most recently, the rise of Islamists to power. Yeah, right. of course, terrorism yeah. colors all these three. Yeah, and so and that I think I think that shapes the debates in ways that um, nowhere in the world I think there's such a divergence between what think tanks who publish research about the Middle East or publish material about the Middle East say and what, for instance, the Middle East Studies Association of North America says. There's, yeah. a, there's yeah. a huge ideological well, and that's and why those movements try to shut down area studies 
in the United States and specifically Middle Eastern studies because they don't like the fact that it is a self-legislating sphere of scholarship rather Absolutely. than a tool of these coin-operated, very ideological things. Absolutely, and luckily I think the field survived uh, 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 the onslaught um, just because ultimately there's, there's such a, I mean, there is, as much as we criticize it, um, there is a level of autonomy that still exists, in whether it's a peer review and um, even some of the grants that are given. And I think you will find in pockets of the U.S. government, there are people who are, who are aware of these problems and who still do what they can to keep, for instance, Title VI funding. Right, which is a segment of the United States Education Act that provides direct federal stimulus to universities on a competitive basis and sometimes in collaborative units that have an emphasis on area studies. Yes. And area studies, which is more or less an invention of the Ford Foundation, hence Saeed saying, how come there's no American studies in, in Middle Eastern universities or Arab universities. Uh, this was the federal government jumping in on a Ford initiative uh, in many ways. And although a lot of us involved in area studies are very critical of it, it is ultimately very benign by contrast with the alternative. Uh, I mean, it has provided espionage people, spies, militarists, and so on, with training, knowledge, insight, connections to do illegal things. But it is a, a serious alternative to the dominance of know-nothing things. Absolutely. And, and I think if we have to choose between well-informed, knowledgeable, uh, language-trained uh, people who instrumentalize this knowledge in, in ways we think are, are to be condemned, uh, we compare that to people who are absolutely ignorant and still act instrumentally, then I'll definitely take the first the formula over the line. So when we hear expressions, when you hear expressions, when your Lebanese family members hear expressions in English like Arab Spring or Arab Street, what do they say to you? What do they mean? They, um, I mean, they don't, they don't mean anything. So one, one of the... Uh, I'll tell you one example um, of the, the popular demonstrations in Beirut 2005. The demonstrators themselves called them the uh, Independence Intifada. And of course in Washington, Intifada doesn't sound great because it's associated with Palestinians. And so um, there was um, one high-level bureaucrat in the State Department who said, see, the revolution sounds good. And some political parties then in Lebanon started calling themselves the Cedar Revolution for obvious reasons, for seeking political support and funding. This is one example, right? While some others say, no, we, we named ourselves. And so this is one example. The word Arab Spring is really not used much in, um, in the Arab public sphere. People talk, in Syria, people talk about the civil war. In, in, um, and that's in Egypt, yes, in Egypt, they talk about the revolution. In Tunisia, they just don't talk about it much. They're too busy trying to figure out uh, what's going to happen. Um, the Arab street is used uh, as a proxy term for public opinion in the Arab press sometimes, but it's used in a much more, in a much less um, um, loaded way than it is. They're not necessarily talking about angry young men who hate America, which is the cliche uh, very often in, 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 in the American press, but rather they're talking about how people feel how people who are, don't have access to elite decisions feel about this. So, inevitably I have to ask you about the technocentric, media-centric mm -hmm. explanation for these things. I know of some Egyptian folks, for example, who certainly talk about a revolution and are deeply offended by the notion that this was suddenly enabled by US-based websites. Or, so, or social media services on the grounds that, well, we've been planning this for 15 years, thank you very much. And others who say it might not have happened, or at least not the way it did, without some of these tools. And I'm just wondering, in terms of the polarities that you get, what your argument would be and how it would vary between Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, for example, and Syria right now. So, I'm... I'm I definitely tend to fall uh, on the skeptical side. I think there's a there's a there's a nexus of, of technological determinism with historical presentism. So we have people who began to write about the Arab world yesterday, 
who are saying what's happening today is unprecedented. And all it, it, it suffices to read about the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. You know, the British, who were then the colonial overlords, banned street theater in Cairo. No, no, in they March were bringing freedom. They were bringing freedom exactly. to Egyptian people. Let me just get, yes. get that straight. Yes. Okay, fine. And, and yet they banned street theater. If you, they banned street for the entire month, or most of March 1919. Street theater was banned by the British in Cairo because they saw it as a dangerous weapon against them. Um, you look at political humor, you look at satirical pamphlets, um, performances in public squares, you had people at coffee shops play the role. They, these played a similar role now in the latest uh, round. But what's, I think what's going on is the following. I call this, that was the, the Edward Said lecture, Plato's Digital Pit. <laughs> because you have basically projections of shadows on walls that are taken as a reality by people who either are ignorant of what's going on or have or have wishful thinking or an ideological agenda. Yeah. And if, and and I think the reason that um, Facebook and Twitter became so big is partly because for most of the public here in, in the West in general, that's the only way they could access what was going on. Many journalists too. And the second I think is because these were people who write for newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, like CNN, who are very anxious about social media because social media seemed to be this new breed that might put them out of work. Um, and so I think that that blends with uh, with, with the technology determinism. Um, ultimately, I think if we look at if we want to, you know, establish an order of hierarchy, I think Facebook might have played a role in. in um, Tunisia. So, a joke, an anecdote about Facebook in Syria. I met um, some young activists who were in Beirut from Damascus, and they told me, so the, the, uh, the regime of Habarat catch you, they arrest you, they slap you around, the first thing they want is your Facebook password. If you don't have it, you get tortured if you don't give it up. And so people were setting up dummy Facebook accounts. Some people who did not have Facebook set, set them up in order to have something to give away. Right? But if, so the argument is that a highly networked um, country would, for instance, kick out, would unseat a dictator fast, Bahrain would have been the first country to get rid of the royal family, and yet we saw what happened. We had the, uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense show up at the capital. He met with the king, coordinated with Saudis. 48 hours later, Saudi tanks were rolling in. So, you know, so, so... If we, yeah. want to, if we want to be technologically deterministic, maybe we should also talk about tanks and, and, and helicopters and, and, and well, machine this guns. Is, and, this uh, is my argument that the most significant technological innovation in journalism in the last 50 years is the 707, the relatively cheap, large commercial passenger jet that enables you to fly around the world very quickly and get film developed very, very quickly. That that is really the moment when you get moment-to-moment -moment reporting of crisis events into the global north. But that you know, but nobody wants to talk about that. They certainly don't want to talk about tanks. They want it to be its own, their own kind of revolution. But it's a twisted, warped, ahistorical rendition of anti-Soviet, anti-socialist Cold War futures. Daniel Bell, you feel the soul pulled. Signe Brzezinski, Alvin Toffler, all these people, George Gilder. Anyway, all right. Marwan, we're about halfway through, and we haven't even gone on to talk about your many books. I'd love for you to tell people, but I want you to have some more of your panini, please. Are they called paninis in Lebanon? What would um, that be called? I think with this bread, yes. It would be panini. But what I, what I, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about some of your recent work, um, your work on ethnography, your work on television genres, uh, your work on the attempt to create a global ecumen of media slash cultural slash communication studies. So if you could just take us through your books, maybe starting from the beginning of the first one. Well, um, the first one was, was a book in which I grappled with the notion of hybridity, um, where there was in what we used to call international communication, suddenly the appearance of hybridity was a very ideologically fraught moment because people used the notion of cultural mixture 
to undermine any critical political, political economic analysis that said, look, in some sense, all the world is becoming the same because we have uh, the same companies that, that it's something you've written about um, um, more than I have. You know, the notion of global Hollywood, yes, Hollywood takes on local vernaculars, but it's still the money that's being made, the structures, the, 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 you know, all, all these things. Um, then I, as I finished um, um, the book, one of the things I realized that perhaps the key, when you say something that's truly global, you know, how can we, how, how can we establish a, a space that's truly global when we mostly write in English, when our work circulates in English, most of the people who read it read it in English, and I think the, the, the best way to think it through is to look what I call south to south connections which is um, doing comparative work with people who are writing in Mexico or in Nigeria, not necessarily and only in the United States uh, or other parts of, of the West. But I also share, um, I think it was, I think it was Innes who, who said that... It was Harold Innes, the Canadian Staples economist who very important communication historian. Yes, I think it was, it was Innes who, who if I'm not mistaken, who said that some of the most interesting work about the world happens in what we call the semi-peripheral, right? The, the, the Australias and Canadas of the world. Um, just because there is a there's an ability to speak to different parts of the world because they don't share the U.S., French, British experience of being at the peak of, of world power, uh, but yet they share the normative privileges and, 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 and advantages. So, so that was that was a, a, an interesting notion. Then I moved on to um, looking at what ethnographic fieldwork can contribute to this, and what it can is precisely this this fine-grained local nuance and perspective um, on this, on how similar events are experienced differently in, 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 in local. Now, can I ask you about that at a conceptual level? This informs a lot of your work, and you've already, in a sense, alluded to it. The supposed tension, the supposed opposition between a bottom-up organic ethnography and a top-down artificial political economy, where one is the voice of the people and the other is the voice of the powerful, and they've got to be kept separate, or there's much disrespect on each side for the other. How do you manage to resolve the tension between the importance of lived experience and the importance of structural power? I think, I think they, they definitely they inform each other. And I, the way I have approached it, the way I found it useful um, to do this, is to focus on a very small piece of territory, so to speak. And um, where you say, so this is what's happening here and now. And then you look at the political economic structures that, that shape uh, what's going on, and then you try to investigate the local experience. Now, the, the price, I paid a price for this, in that, um, so this is, for instance, one of the things I did with the reality TV book, uh, reality television era politics, which is to say, let me focus on one genre of television, uh, let me focus on one region of the world, and look at kind of a general public sphere uh, a, a notion. Um, what that allowed me to do, I think, is to, is, is to achieve a level of depth that I found satisfying. But the price I've paid is that I'm finding myself increasingly less able to write in a very in an informed and authoritative way about other things. And I think this is, I think this is a trade-off. Um, and so maybe I lost the ability to write about these, these other things because I focused on that trying to understand a local experience through one television genre. Uh, of course, we're talking about two dozen countries, so it's not too small, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's a different way of approaching it. And then, of course, I think, you know, um, you have written quite a bit about, about kind of the sterility of the opposition between material structures and, 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 and structures of feeling, or, you know, political economy and cultural studies. And this is, I think this is something that, at some point, a debate that the field goes through and then we really need to go beyond that. And, and we, we've seen a lot of studies that, uh, that have just made that shift. 
right. don't worry about it's that. It's not so much a problem. No. Now, I want to pick you up on the issue of, in a sense, disabling oneself by immersion in the topic, which I think is very interesting. It's both enabling and disabling. But I'd love to go back to your notion of hybridity, both to explain to us how it would fit alongside you know, Baba, Homi Baba, or Nesra Sefranklini, or Bruno Latour, or whoever, but also whether it's a methodological question as well, in terms of blending things in the way you just described. So, could you lay that out for us? Yes, so, so one of the, one of the daunting tasks in grappling with one concept is to look at the genealogy of the concept and, mm -hmm. and sure. an associated concept. So, the word hybridity itself was used by people like Homi Baba, um, broadly characterized as post-colonial theorists, and people like um, Nestor Garcia Cantini, who maybe because he was not from India, was not characterized in, in kind of the global literary marketplace as a post-colonial theorist, but really that's that's what he does, and he takes Cantini um, um, takes a more sociological approach than say Baba. Um, you have all the religious syncretism stuff, you have um, a lot of the anti-colonial literature, the, the, the negritude movement um, um, against French uh, um, colonialism. Um, yes. Um, and so what, what, what all these, I think, do is testify to this predicament of being so shaped by the Western metropolis that it becomes an unavoidable part of your daily life. Right. And it infuses the more the local, the traditional, the religious, whatever it is. And so hybridity becomes this way of dealing and describing with the experience of modernity that, that has been so stamped by Western powers. And so I think in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very helpful... Uh, now, it could also be paralyzing philologically because if everything is a hybrid then why the heck do we bother with the concept at all? Well it's because I think recognizing that everything is mixed and made out of carries the traces of many influences and, and, and cultural, political, economic can really help us understand. Sure. It I mean this is the great Latourian gift to us, I think, in questioning the idea of the modern as something that puts things realistically into different categories. Yes. Uh, it does so in a hermetic, an apparently hermetically sealed way that never manages to keep them contained for terribly long, and that does interpretative violence to the fact that they are, in fact, more monstrous than these purest categories will allow. Okay, so let's get on now to this issue of the enabling-disabling impact for you of going very deeply into one topic, albeit across over 20 sides. I mean, what, so, so what is enabling is that I found myself reading uh, Saudi poetry uh, and the work of some novelists. So, for instance, one of the things I, I, I knew from before that Saudi Arabia has um, the poetry in the Gulf countries, in Saudi Arabia, and the Arab world in general is very important. It's still a very vibrant part of life. So, a major poet dies, uh, it's like the Beatles, right? It's like John Lennon died. So, they have these kind of rock star so that was interesting. Then you start reading about um, in a country that's often characterized in the West as uh, culturally bare. You have the desert and you have Islam, and you have covered women and a lot of oil. That's Saudi Arabia in a nutshell. You discover that in fact there's a very, very robust literary life. There are literary clubs where political battles are waged through poetry, through prose, things of that sort. Um, you start reading in the language. So I found myself, this is what's revealing, I found myself going through weeks at a time when I'm reading more Arabic than English. And you start thinking, if you start discovering that uh, concepts that we think are unique to the English experience or to American theorists, that people have been grappling with very similar issues with very similar borderline parallel concepts in their own way. Um, so. That allows you, I think, to look, maybe to know more and more about less and less, right? But knowing more and more is very interesting because you get a sense of the texture of public debate, of culture that you don't get 
when you're still at a general level, when you're riding, excuse me, in a more kind of helicopter view of the world. Um, and you also see internal comparison that has, has to be drawn between things that you suppose existed in one category that needed to be compared to something else. So for instance, there were major differences between Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Bahrain. Even when we're talking about public debates that about um, Star Academy or, or Big Brother that took similar forms, there were in fact very different debates. In Bahrain, it was it was mostly economic debate. Uh, in Kuwait, it was mostly political. In Saudi Arabia, it was mostly religious ideological. So, so this is what this is what's enabling. Of course, what's disabling is. Um, you're not keeping up with the vast and perhaps uneven, but I'm missing out on some of the other literature on reality that you simply can't keep up with if you're focusing on that one region. And you also lose, I think, it's easy to lose touch with how that specific region fits in the world. After all, reality TV is one of the symptoms of, of global neoliberalism, the privatization of, 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 um, of television and media, of... Um, um, the division of cultural labor that you talked about, of all these things. Yeah, you know? and I guess the, the other factor here is that at one level, as an Arabist, if I can use that term, uh, you're in great demand academically, intellectually, in, in many ways, because you're the guy who can speak great English and writes a lot and understands this phenomenon. You're a go-to person on this. On the other hand, as with all area studies, that can be very disabling too. Because what these people, by, by which I mean everything from CNN to me, will never allow is the movement from this being very important in a regional sense to this actually being something that might change theoretical debates. And it's not just empirically exemplary of something. They might be theorists who are poets, who can tell me something. Rather like what happens if you're the queer person or the literary theory person or the person of colour who gets hired at the end of the row in the university department because you've got to have one of those, so Noah's Ark minus 50% model. And it's good that they're there and the students like it and so on, but I, of course, am not going to learn anything from I think so that's one of the other issues. Yes. When you go very deeply into even a very broad topic, and even one that is a la mode for geopolitical reasons, you stop being a theorist, yes. for example. Yes, and you become just one more way in which you are broadening the empirical base for... Um, and, and, I, and I see this a lot, and, for, and I've, been, I've been quite critical of this. So, I see a lot of these multi-country projects where you typically have um, a North American and a European academic tend to be senior, tend to have a lot of resources, and you construct the project, a conceptual basis of theory, and then find partners in different countries to provide all data. All grad students, all grad students who are from those countries yes. and who are loyal acolytes yes. to the theoretical perspectives of the great men. Yeah, absolutely. But to me, so what's interesting, um, the, the paper I gave this morning at, at the International Communication Association, basically, I'm using my experience with Beirut graffiti over a year to advance a critical notion of the creative city to, to go against this so to go against the notion of uh, um, creativity as a monetization of culture as, as and, and, and looking at, at, at the Arab street yes uh, and look at, at creativity as actually critical political practice and, and so in that sense I think I might encounter quite a bit of resistance but I'm very determined that I'm not going looking for data to enter into dialogue with pre-established theories. I'm trying to find ways in which I could fundamentally re-articulate some of the basic concepts through these quote-unquote data, whatever that means. And you've, in addition to the books I've already mentioned, you've had other collaborators and interlocutors, Patrick Murphy, yes. you, for example? Yes. So Patrick Murphy is, um, is a, is a, is a co-author, a collaborator, and a very good friend of mine. Patrick grew up with an anthropologist father, so he grew up part of his life in a small village in Mexico. And he comes to 
the field of, of media studies and what, what we used to call audience research with a very visceral commitment to actual ethnography. And for instance, for him, they, 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 this, this polar opposite between lived experience and material structure never existed. Mm -hmm. It's because he's mm -hmm. seen how mm -hmm. they can. So collaborating with him was, um, and it still is, we're still hoping to write together in that sense somebody who basically grew up drinking ethnography mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. didn't discover it in grad school let's put it this way um, another collaborator is uh, Joseph Khalil who teaches in Northwestern uh, Kappa we've written a book together uh, about the Arab television industry trying to explain it to not only academics but journalists and people who might who might be interested in learning something from people who dealt with it Joe also worked in in, in the media, uh, and you know, it's I, I I think you and I have also discovered this that I don't like the model of collaboration, and I think that's your model too, where you you divide tasks very precisely, and you know you do A A B C, and somebody else does E F G, but rather it's really a, a process of back and forth that carries. I think moments of serendipity and potential for you know new directions and all that. Even if sometimes it creates anxiety, I know some people don't like to work. They like sure. to be, but, it, uh, but it works. Upset. It works for you. Yes, but it's very much yeah. the same issue than going somewhere and abandoning a previous project if you think you you really find something new and more interesting. Yeah, and more interesting. And more meaningful. It's operating inductively, one might say. No, that's very, very interesting. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about the importance of operating in that way. Uh, now, when you mentioned that your book on the Arab media industries was directed not only at ourselves, but at journalists and so on, in general, what has been your experience of being a public intellectual in the US and elsewhere? Talking about, for example, the Arab world or Arab media. What sort of audience, what sort of public have you had? What have you been able to say and get across versus what you've not been able to say? I think, I think, I think there are different, different experiences with different kind of media. So my favorite is national public radio because it seems to me it's the only forum where you actually get to go beyond the soundbite. Um, I have not been very successful. Or I, writing opens. I know you've, you, 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 you're prolific at that. I just have not been successful at um, being able to drive across a message in 700 or 600 words uh, to an audience that has no academic uh, uh, practice. I think, I think what you discover are two things. Um, you go to give some of these interviews and you feel you're just being there, uh, you're just being brought as a token expert to confirm what people already are going to say and what they have in mind. Mm. And quickly you learn to, to smell this with whiffs of this when an invitation <laughs> comes and you stop doing those. And you have yeah. and you have the experience also of genuine interest. So one of the things that I found uh, is in some ways giving um, talks or meetings, you know, at civic auditoria or bookstores, things of that sort in the Midwest. People are amazingly more open than when you're in New York City or in Washington D.C., where there is a, there, there seems to be an intellectual consensus about what it means, what are the lines of discourse about Arab media. Uh, for instance, when I was in Washington, everybody wanted to know about Al Jazeera, and my line was, "I'm sorry, I'm not interested in Al Jazeera. I think it does a couple of things really well. I think it does a couple of things really badly, um, but it's one." platform among many others yeah. but there's this fixation yeah, yeah. and um, it took years you know giving talks titled beyond Al Jazeera and, Not and, and, then, and, then, and then one day you discovered everybody thinks reality TV yeah. is a big deal in the world <laughs> uh, um, three or four years after you know um, and so there are very clear expectations that yeah. you violate at your own risk I've never gotten the kind of uh, you, you get the occasional piece of hate mail after you say something, um, but I think there are on 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 Arab issues there are public intellectuals who are a lot more visible than I am. Who I, who my guess is attract all the heat. They could be also more outspoken, 
Um, I'm thinking of someone like Juan Cole uh -huh. in the United States. Yeah, yeah so, someone, so, so someone like like uh, Juan Cole, you know, he's he's lived in many parts of the Middle East for years. So he is he is a real he's the real deal. Uh, he knows the languages, uh, and he's um, and I don't mean as I don't mean it in any critical way. He's also a white American. There's no there's no accent that gives that provides a wedge for people to other you immediately. Yeah. Uh, even with that, he's been attacked left and right. He's been subjected yeah. to, um, he says, you know, illegal surveillance and all that. He was uh, going, he was recruited to go to Yale, um, and he was torpedoed. He's a one who was torpedoed on ideological basis, I'd apparently. I've forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, I remember and so that. Yeah. He, he paid yeah. a price. Uh, and um, he's at University of Michigan, which is a very good school. Yes. And is in a state where there are quite a lot of Arabs, actually, yes. too, historically. Exactly. Yes. And I think, and I think, you know, his, um, and I think his blog, for instance, also yeah. um, reflects the importance of not being too narrow in what yeah. you write about. Yeah. He writes about American politics. He writes a lot about the environment, which is something yeah. you write a lot about. Um, and so, what he does, he aggregates, yeah. to use yeah. very instrumental language, several audiences, yeah. uh, which is something I wish I knew how to do. Well, now, in speaking of Al Jazeera, you have been on it quite a bit. Uh -huh. um, so I'd love to hear not so much your views of Al Jazeera, because you've already discovered fucking secretly asked about that. But I know from talking to some people at the station, you're well known. Actually, so what have you ever done for them? What have you found when you've been involved with them, either in an on online basis or live on television? I, so I've done. I, I, I've, I've worked mostly with the English channel, less with the Arabic channel. Um, what I found is there is a commitment to um, global south ideas. So um, I think it's very interesting with their commitment to Africa, the way they cover Africa. So, so that that predisposed me to uh, being favorable. Um, I, I did a lot of work with them um, last year. Their studio in Beirut is a 10-minute walk for me. And... Um, they were very interested in the Syria story. And um, at some point I felt a little bit, I was never pressured to say anything. I've even um, criticized some of their sponsors on their shows, and that was fine. Um, but the, you could tell this unease. So on the one hand, you're doing these interviews talking about Syrian videos, viral videos, when people were resigning from the bureau in Beirut in protest against how Al Jazeera was covering Syria. And they were claiming, and to some extent uh, uh, justifiably, that they were getting instructions on how to cover basically pro-opposition against the regime. And this happened with Libya as well. Yes. A lot of controversy over the Libyan coverage. Absolutely. Um, there are some differences between the Arabic and the English channel, but let's just say that um, Al Jazeera was very enthusiastic. Uh, about Libya. I mean, Qatar had commandos. They even sent two fighter jets to contribute to the effort. Um, they were also very supportive uh, in the case of Tunisia. In the case of Egypt, they were not interested at the beginning. But then when it looked like the Muslim Brotherhood was beginning to take an active role, they became interested. And then Bahrain was in silence. Yeah. Bahrain would yeah. be mentioned as if it's, you know, a kid broke his leg in Tuvalu. <laughs> that was, you know, that was Bahrain, um, and this is, I think, this is the, the anywhere but here model yeah. Yeah. That, that they suffer from. There's, no, there's just no doubt about it. And I think Al Jazeera, though, lost quite a bit of its credibility, because now it is seen as it's identified with one side in these conflicts, and that one side is really the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood affiliated parties are in charge in Tunisia, in Egypt, um, to some extent in Morocco, um, so maybe it's a smart thing to do, to be associated with them. But I think Al Jazeera lost its status as a place where any two people can go in a studio and duke it out. And really duke it out. What about the whole question of a Gulf Enlightenment? I don't know what that would mean, um, except to... Um, I, I, I think of it in some, in some ways, perhaps unfairly, as, as modernization without modernity which is, you know, the gaudy architecture and the glitzy skyscrapers and amazing levels of services and um, 
best highways and the best internet connections. Uh, but and indentured labor, indentured from labor, South basically Asia. modern form of slavery. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even professors, journalists have to completely watch over their back if they whisper. Uh, so we're talking about a very strange combination of, of, of elements. Uh, Bahrain was the one case where there was a true movement. Bahrain has had a civil disobedience movement from the 70s, and it was completely squashed. It was completely uh, squashed, so much so that that famous Pearl Roundabout, which became the public space, was raised by the authorities. They just did not want... Uh, they took it off something, currency, they took it off the visa stamps because it became associated with 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 the rebels. Hold the rebel erasure from history. Time. Exactly, that's exactly what it is. So I don't know what it, what it would mean, uh, really, except at some point the rise of the middle class that's not content anymore with having employment for life and not paying any bills for right. anything and, and, and have free education wherever they want to go. Uh, at some point, there will be there will be a rebellion. We're going through a moment at the moment, right now, when we're seeing mass protests across Brazil at the incredible waste of money on next year's World Cup of Men's Football, versus the provision of fundamental services like potable water, bridges, transportation for ordinary people in a country that's meant to be football mad. The World Cup after that for men's football is going to be in the Arab world in a place where it is ludicrous to imagine do you think that that will be any kind of catalyst for protest, rejection, not necessarily locally, but actually by people from maybe other Arab countries visiting, or south-to-south protest solidarity? Uh, it could be, although history shows that it cautions us against being too optimistic. You have the example of Formula One in Bahrain. Yep. Uh, mm. uh, Arabs are also mad about car racing. I mean, Cross-class. Uh, yes. Right. Yes. And um, Bahrain, by bringing, you know, so, so the notion of, it's part of nation branding, right? You bring a globally recognized event. And activists have been huge hopes on Formula One um, to bring global visibility to local struggles. There was a, they, they got a couple of drivers almost on side making yes. positive statements. and that's it. And then it just petered out. And, and petered out. And, um, you know, it, it, the World Cup is going to Qatar after, after yeah. Brazil. Yeah. And Qatar and Brazil could not be more of a contact. The, we're, we're talking about borderline science fiction things, like grants awarded by the government to create, to have rain, create rain over the state to, to cool it down. Keep, keep the temperatures at a certain guaranteed level. Yes, so playing God, basically, uh, with the environment. Um, you have, although it, it's part of a bigger plan, I think, in, in, in Qatar, that's really run by, by, the, by the royal family, which is, um, Qatar, you can, you can nearly grow nothing in Qatar. So, uh, Qatar's biggest source of insecurity, it's national security issue, for, as far as I can say, is food. So what they're doing is, they're building these football arenas, and then exporting them to African countries, and in exchange, they're getting basically leases on, on agricultural land that they can manage and plant. So it's part of a big economic plan uh, uh, for the country. Now, the countries where these are, are going to are so poor that I don't think anybody can, from these countries, very few people can afford to actually travel to watch games where their national teams are playing. And if they were, and if there was any sense that that might be a threat, they wouldn't get visas. So. I'm not very hopeful about about it being um, leading to any breakthrough politically. But who knows? These things yes. are hard to predict. And certainly what's happening in Brazil is very exciting. Of course, what's very different there is that Dilma, the president, at least overtly is forced, because of her politics, to welcome the protests. Yes, absolutely. And that's very, that, that's very refreshing, right? That's not something um, you would ever get in Britain. You might get it from Obama in a very token way. Yes. You would never get it. Here. You got it from the uh, from the Turkish president who initial oh, uh, Turkish president, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Who, yes. who, who yes. might want to compete with the prime minister for the next, you know, yeah. when when the presidency becomes an actually executive, powerful executive uh, office. Um, so you see that a little bit. But yes, and, and, and I think what's 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 also interesting is that 
Brazilian demonstrators forced the government to back down on, on public transportation. So, so, you know, we're seeing contentious street politics actually affecting policy immediately. And people understanding how you can use, not necessarily Twitter or Facebook, but the bourgeois international media to get your point across. Absolutely. That these things still might matter. Well, Marwan, thank you very much for taking time to be thank with you, us Bobby. here in the pod. Will you come back and join us again soon? I sure hope so. Great, thank you. Thank you.